back up and kind of get the context. So, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of, earth, of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord, we pray that you would Take these words that are oh so familiar to us and help us to see them in a manner and in a way that causes us to see them as if it were for the first time. That we might rejoice in these words, that we might be invigorated by these words. We would see them for the glorious truth that they are, that you save your people from their sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this manner because our heart's cry is that we would walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. And to that end, we want to glorify you. And so we ask for your Spirit's help in guiding us into this understanding here tonight, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. I've lived in the neighborhood that I currently live in for probably about five-ish years, I think. And you drive in and out of your neighborhood all the time, and you're well aware of where the stop signs are, and if you live in apartments, where the speed bumps are, or you know where you can go around a corner and go slow because you expect children to be playing, or you can know you can kind of whip around this corner because there's never anybody there or anything like that. And so you get the feel, you get to know your neighborhood, the familiarity of it. But since the beginning of the year, and since I've started exercising more and doing these kind of things, and when the weather permits, I'll take Charlotte and I'll put her up on my shoulders and we'll go for a walk around the neighborhood. And I'll tell you what, I thought I knew the neighborhood pretty well until I started going slow 
and walking around the neighborhood, and suddenly I see a funny little cowboy on the side that has a little hole in his hand that he can hold the water hose for you, and I never noticed it before. I, I walk around and I notice a house with some beautiful flowers that I'm like, I drive by this every day and I've never noticed this. I notice where there are houses that are well kept and houses that aren't and I can see, you know, new things and it's a new perspective because, well, I'm not in a hurry to get anywhere. I'm going slow and I'm being deliberate about the actions that I'm taking. It helps to have Charlotte because we play this little game of what do you see? And she started even singing songs going, I see blue sky, I see green trees, I see a bird in the sky. And it just is random whatever she sees, and I love it. But it reminds me that as we go slow and we look around, we see things that even if we're very familiar with them, we might have missed before. And boy, if there's ever a passage where we're familiar with, but maybe we've missed something. It's John 3.16. What a great text, first of all, right? I mean, there's a reason why dude with the rainbow hair can go to football games and hold up the signs behind the goalposts and behind the, the batter's box. And, and he puts it everywhere. He has. He's not doing it so much anymore because of some legal problems. But needless to say, for a time... That was a staple of sporting events throughout America. And people would go look that passage up and begin to read what John 3.16 is. If you've ever been to any type of evangelistic crusade or anything along those lines, this is the bread and butter of those kind of events. John 3.16. We probably all could memorize it. In fact, I would venture a wager if I were a betting guy, and I'm not because I always lose, so I quit, so I don't, even though I still would in this instance, perhaps, if we were to go out to something like the farmer's market and just do a random survey, quote me a Bible verse, this is the one we're going to get probably two or three times more than any other verse, including much simpler verses like Jesus wept or God is love, right? We're going to get John 3.16. It's just that ubiquitous in our culture. And so, like my trips around the neighborhood, it behooves us to slow down, which is why I've been going so slow through John 3 here, and see what it's actually saying. Because when we remove it out of the context, oftentimes words get emphasized that as we read the whole context, oughtn't to be emphasized. I think specifically of the word whosoever, which I don't have in my ESV. It says whoever believes. But the King James is whosoever believes in him. Right? You've probably heard it preached like that. It kind of feels good to throw it out there like that even myself. But... The point is that that word of emphasis in that whosoever believes is actually believes, not whosoever. But when you just pull it out of context and you quote the verse for just the verse's sake, that word is going to pop out. And it does pop out. Now, it certainly should be there and has a place in the text, which we'll look at as we go through it. But let me back up a minute 
because it's been a week. Fred preached last week. Thank you, brother. It was fantastic. And he preached out of 1 Peter. So let's go back into John and kind of remember where we're at. John 3 is right after the occasion where Jesus cleansed the temple the first time. You remember the cleansing of the temple. He turned over the money tables. He let loose the pigeons. He created a whip and started whipping the beast to get them out of the court of the Gentiles, which was to be a place of worship and prayer for the Gentiles who came to worship God. And instead, the Jewish bureaucracy of the religious group of the day turned it into a free market, as it were, for animals to be sacrificed, monies to be exchanged for the Passover event. Jesus ran them all out. And they said to him, who do you think you are, dude? Coming in here and wrecking our enterprise? Where do you get, who the gall do you have? You can imagine all the manner of consternation that came about with that event. Because of that, Jesus' answer was, well, I'm going to tear this temple down, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And of course, they all laughed him to scorn. Ha! Took 40-something years to build this thing, and you can tear it down in three days? Okay, buddy. Well, something got the attention of Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees. He was there with all the questioning. He was there as the monies were being exchanged. He was there as the pigeons were being sold and the oxes were being sold and the lambs were being sold. He was one of the ones who apparently approved of the operation. But Jesus' words got to him. And so he came to Jesus, albeit at night, under the cloak of darkness, and he came to Jesus and said, look, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because of the things you do. So he's saying the foundation for Jesus' words to be believed was on the works he was doing, when it was really that was topsy-turvy, and Jesus was about to show him that. Jesus says to him, I tell you, no one can come to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of my Father, unless he has been born again. And remember as we looked at that, that that was like so jarring for Nicodemus that he responds with, what are you talking about in modern English? He was constantly, he was confused. What in the world are you talking about? Am I supposed to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born a second time, Jesus? Now I imagine there was some serious questioning along with some ridicule going on in Nicodemus based upon Jesus' response. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. See, Nicodemus was marveling. He was Incredible. He couldn't believe it. Don't marvel that I say you must be born again. And then listen, this is the kicker, verse 8. And it's important to understand verse 16. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? So, Nicodemus is a Pharisee of Pharisees. And remember, we looked at the fact that there's no way he didn't think he was going to be in the kingdom of God. All the Pharisees thought they were going to be there. Heck, they're the Pharisees, capital P. We're going to be there if anybody's going to be there. But Jesus says to him, you, Nicodemus, can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And of course, he understood Jesus was saying he hadn't been born again yet, which is why he's saying, well, how can this be? Well, what are you talking about? How do I get saved then? You can almost hear the desperation coming out in the language of Nicodemus, and rightly so. And remember, Jesus says, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? And we looked at how the Old Testament alluded to in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and Isaiah and lots of other passages, the fact that this new covenant, this new birth was going to come. It was going to happen, and they should have anticipated it, but clearly they didn't. So Jesus says in our text, if I've told you about earthly things, or maybe we should say worldly things, because Jesus uses the word world here. John actually uses the word world as he writes the words that Jesus spoke. And John uses the word world in at least six different ways in his writings. And so it's important for us to discern, well, what is he actually saying by world here? Worldly things or earthly things are things that matter earthly, like physical birth. Right? Being born of the water, being born like a normal person is. Those are earthly things. Things that happen every single day all over the world. It's something that we're all familiar with. You know, you've been around or most of us have kids here in the room. And we understand these things here about these worldly things. But Jesus says, if I talk to you about worldly things and you don't believe what I'm saying, how in the world are you going to understand what I talk to you about heavenly things? And then he talks about how he is this son of man who has descended from heaven. Again, quoting uh, Daniel chapter 7. And then he talks about that those who believe in him will have eternal life like numbers where the bronze serpent was raised up. And when the Jews were bit by those fiery snakes sent as a judgment from God because of their sin, if they were to go and look and cast their eye upon that bronze serpent on the pole, they would be healed and they wouldn't die. And Jesus likens himself again to this Old Testament illusion to the salvation Jesus is going to provide. And all that's before we get to chapter 3, verse 16. The Spirit's the one who does the saving. The Spirit's the one who causes you to be born again. Can I say that that is the Spirit's primary job in the world, is to regenerate people, to save people, to cause them to become born again. He does it through the convicting work. John teaches us in chapter 16 that the helper is going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. So the Holy Spirit's 
primary job in this world is that he invades this world with grace. He invades this world with God's power, and he does it, and the greatest miracle is not some kind of, you know, leg lengthening or some kind of other kind of supposed healing, or maybe even legitimate healings. There are those things that happen, but we focus way too much on that kind of stuff to the exclusion of the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are by nature a child of wrath. Your sin is such an offense to God that he must judge you because you have committed what I've said before, and I'm not coining the phrase, but you've committed cosmic treason or infinite treason. You have rebelled against a holy God who has created you and you exist by his sheer power and his sheer will. And your sin is you living in rebellion against that holy God and you basically shaking your fist at him saying, you will not tell me what to do with my life. I will tell me what to do with my life. I am free. I am libertarian. Who are you, God, to answer back to me? When in fact, the reality is, is who are we, O oh man, to answer back to God? God is far too small if we just relegate him to the realm of giving us words and then hoping and pleading that we would respond. God is far too small if we were to relegate him to the realm as the Holy Spirit of performing some supernatural acts and not being the one who comes into your life and takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Causes your dead bones to be brought back to life through the power of the invigorating word of the Holy Spirit as it's combined with the gospel being preached. We see far too little about God if we see Jesus as simply a mere potential savior who when he died on the cross did all that he possibly could and now it's up to you to make some right decision when you can't do it. Think about it. If your old heart needs to be changed and it doesn't want to be changed and it needs to be changed to a new heart, can your old heart decide to become new? Wouldn't your old heart be good enough if it could make that decision? But it's not. That's the point Jesus is making. You must be born again. You need to be transformed before anything else can happen. You need to be caused to be given new life. This new birth comes with faith and repentance. Now you might say, well, doesn't everybody have faith? Doesn't it? everybody has faith? Everybody believes in something. I mean, we might, you know, use faith in other vernacular, like, you know, I'm right, Joel, a check. He has faith that that check is going to be what is needed to get money out of my account. So there's an element of faith, but that's not what we're talking about biblically speaking at all. In the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, Paul pleads with the Thessalonians. And he says to them, pray for us that hostile men don't have the power to thwart us in what we're doing. And pray for us because he says, not all men have faith. Not everybody has faith. This saving faith. Not everybody does. Why? Well, because it's a gift of God. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says this has been granted to you not only to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to believe in his name. Ephesians chapter 2, a passage again we're all very familiar with, says that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and it is a gift of God, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's not of ourselves. Nicodemus thought he was so right. Thought his works put him in a very favorable position, but he was in fact not right with God. He needed what every single human needs, and that's the new birth, and it comes only by the Holy Spirit. And he says here that it only happens, and we don't know how it happens, by the will of the Holy Spirit. We must trust in the sovereignty of God in these matters, that he knows and he does always rightly, because it's like the wind. We can't contain the wind. We can set up big fat windmills that spin around and kind of harness some of the power of it, but we don't control the wind. And Jesus says that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. You don't control the Holy Spirit. He goes where he wishes. The Father ordained salvation. Christ came to purchase that salvation, and the Holy Spirit comes and applies that salvation to a person's heart and life. Now, only then can we come to verse 16. With that background in mind, for God, the almighty, sovereign, ruler, creator, sustainer of the entire cosmos, loved the world. How did he love this world? First thing, we need to beware that we don't equate our understanding of love with God's understanding of love. My understanding of love, as best as it can possibly be, is so inferior to the love that God has for us. We cannot fathom that kind of love. The best we can do is think, well, he tells us in Ephesians that husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But dudes, tell me, is that not a pipe dream? <laughs> I mean, it's a glorious command. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But has there been a single second of your life, men, where you've loved your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? No. <laughs> no. Every single thing I do at the best I can possibly be is still going to be commingled with my partially sanctified self. So I pray to that end. I strive to that end. My goal is to love my wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But I know I'm not. I don't live up to that standard. When I read the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I plug my name in there, like so many of us have been taught to do, we realize how short we fall. But when we pull Christ's name into that, it makes perfect sense. That's the kind of way we need to think when we come to this text. Because if we come to this text and we think God so loved the world and we equate it with our kind of love, it's going to be sentimental. And that's always going to be deficient. Because there is no sentimentality with God. His love is a holy, righteous, pure, accurate, perfect love. A love that we can't even begin to understand. 
So when it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, what we need to remember is that what he's doing is he's displaying a kind of love that is going to be for the rest of the world hard, if I may understate it, to understand apart from Christ's actual work and death on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son. Now we've already seen in the Gospel of John, we've seen in other places where Jesus, when he is doing a particular um, point of emphasis in his ministry, like his baptism, the transfiguration, the skies open up and God says from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is the son whom God the father is well pleased with and he gave his only son as a demonstration to the world of his great love so that whoever believes. Now it isn't the whosoever, it's the believing one that the emphasis needs to be on. Because we've already seen where that faith comes from. If whoever is emphasized, it completely cancels out everything Jesus said previously in John chapter 3. This is why I wanted us to, as it were, walk around the block slowly and kind of get what we see from the rest of the text as we come to this text. God so loved the world and he demonstrated this love by giving his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Only the believing ones have eternal life. So it behooves us to use this passage absolutely evangelistically because the gospel is what is, right, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the means by which anyone gets saved. The gospel is the message that we preach. And remember, the gospel isn't good things that you do. The gospel is a set of objective facts that happen that you're required to put your trust in. And those objective facts are the fact that you're a sinner, you've sinned in Adam, and you sin on your own throughout your life. You are dead in your trespasses and sins before God. But God has seen fit to send his son into the world, and he lived the perfect life that not only you can't live, but Adam couldn't live. And so where Adam failed in his covenant that was established with God, Christ succeeded. And now you are required to believe and trust in Christ's perfect life for your behalf. And if you trust in his life, then his death is also trusted as your death. You deserve to die that death that Jesus died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are words you deserve to hear, and I deserve to hear Rightly so. I've completely earned them. But he's seen fit not to do that. And the proof of that great exchange of my life for Christ's, God treating Jesus as if he lived my sinful life so that he could treat me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life, is proved by the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life. So the gospel is those facts. Sin, redemption, in Christ, and now I trust in that work that Christ did on my behalf. No, apart from works, there's no works. Repentance isn't a work. Faith isn't a work. In fact, those are things that I can only do, in fact, once I've been born again. And we'll see that here in a little bit. But 
I trust in those objective facts, and those are what justify me. Those are what save me. You see, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life comes because I believe that Christ's life that he earned is now mine, and I am his. This is why union with Christ is one of the greatest doctrines in all of Scripture. This is why big fat books are written about union with Christ. And you can go in them and it's deep and it's everywhere. And you see Old Testament stuff, really, the New Testament stuff. And you're just like, oh, this is so amazing. I love Jesus. Have you united to him forever is one of the most glorious truths in all of Christendom. And this is why right here. Because your union with Christ is your eternal life. And it doesn't just mean a whole lot long time of what you got right now. It means that you will be absolutely purified and you will be like incarnate deity as much as you can possibly be. That would be blasphemous if it wasn't in the Bible, right? But 1 John chapter 3 says, we don't know what we're going to be like, beloved, but we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him even as he is. You see, that's eternal life. Eternal life is that I get to eternally exist with Jesus. And I long for it, I long for it, I long for it, I long for it. I love Jesus. That's a desperate prayer that I pray, that, Lord, we want to walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. Because this is eternal life right now being lived out in this still broken shell of a man. But I get that little taste of heaven as I worship the Lord and I get to know him better and I fall more in love with Jesus. And Jesus becomes that much more sweet and that much more precious to me because he is my eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world, time and space world, right? Different than the world he displayed his love to. He displayed his love to all of humankind. But this, he sent his son into the time and space world. Why? Why did he do this? Not to condemn the world. Because it's already condemned. And I'm getting a little ahead of the text. But I want us to see that. Look down at verse, the end of 18, verse 19. Um, uh, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world because it's condemned already. We're already in sin. We're already dead in our trespasses and sin. We've already screwed this planet up enough. And along with the planet, our souls. But God, even though, even though, there's no words to say. I can say I made a hash of my life. I can say I screwed it up. I can use all manner of words to try to describe my own sin. But they will all fall short before the word condemn. That's a harsh word to hear. I condemn you. That's a serious judgment to hear. Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world because it's condemned already. But 
Christ came into the world out of that condemnation to save people, to redeem people. Christ out of that condemnation for his glorious plan, his perfect purpose, saw fit to take me. And I don't know why. It glorifies him somehow. <laughs> for all eternity, I get to be a trophy of his grace because I lived under this condemnation. I'm condemned already. I am by nature a child of wrath, but he saw fit instead of rather leaving me in my misery and decay and muck and despair to say, no, 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 Pat. You're no longer yours. You are mine. And he saved me. He's the one who took me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock, to quote that wonderful song. That in order that the world, the world of whoever believes, might be saved through him. The world in this sense means people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, like Romans, pardon me, Romans, Revelation chapter 5 talk about. I can go to the whole world. I can go anywhere in the world. I can go to Laos. I can go to Uzbekistan. I can go to North Korea, for goodness sake. And I can preach this message that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I can say you are a sinner and you know it because of your guilt. But there's good news. You can be saved from your sins. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. And I know that this message will be effectual because Christ says at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he is with us always, even to the end of the age. I don't go alone. I go with Christ, and I go with the Holy Spirit in the power that he has given me to proclaim the gospel because he is not done doing his greatest work of saving people from their sins. So while the world is condemned already, verse 18 says so, God is not content with leaving all of the world condemned. He is saving people by the millions all over the globe. Here in America, all over the place, South America, Europe, Asia, wherever. Probably Antarctica, someone's sharing, spreading tracks down there, I'm sure. <laughs> Something like that. Anywhere we go, we can know we can share the gospel because, listen, the power of God is absolutely effectual. And I can go and I can share this gospel, I can share this light. And those people where the spirit is blowing like the wind in their lives will end up coming to him. Listen, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Again, population of the world. You see how he's using the word world already four different times in this text. He's come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The problem with the world is first of all a moral problem. The problem with the world is first of all a moral problem. But look at verse 20 and 21 as we close. What a contrast of natures do we see here. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People do what it is in their nature to do. You will do what it is in your nature to do. You'll do whatever you want to do. We've talked about this lots of times. And if you're a sinner, you're going to want to live in sin. People loved the darkness rather than the light. They love their darkness. They love it. They love their sin. They love their rebellion. They love their supposed autonomy. And while they may have some semblance of autonomy in this world and they're doing whatever they want, unfortunately, they don't realize they're a slave to sin and they're a slave to those desires and they're a slave to those passions. And they can only do those passions. They can only do dark. They can only do it because that's where their affections are, their heart is, their problem is, their mind is set on darkness because they are dead and they haven't experienced the new birth. But whoever does what is true, faith, repentance, right, comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Even the very works we do, we don't do on our own once we're united to Christ. Even those very works are done in God. Listen, as I close, God gave his son he gave his son to those people, to our the world, to demonstrate the fact that if we believe in him, we'd have eternal life, and those who didn't, that they would no longer be without excuse. But God also gives us the faith to believe in his son. God gives to us everlasting life as a reward for exercising the very faith he gave us in the first place. All glory goes to God. Listen. I can't get enough of glorifying God. God is a big, 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 massive God. And it, does, it, it hurts my heart, honestly, sometimes when I hear about people talking about God. And I'm not saying they're not Christian, they're demonic or whatever. But there's a lot of people out there who preach, who preach kind of a pipsqueak kind of God. He kind of did the best he could, and now he's, you know, it's just all up to you now, and come on, guys. Or a Santa Claus kind of God, or a God who's, you know, he's just up there waiting for you to get your felt needs met, and if you'd only come to him with the stuff you want, you know, that kind of thing. Now there's an element of truth where he does want us to grow, and he does want us to be sanctified. The truth of the matter is God is a massive God and he is concerned with his glory and he will receive his glory as he changes me and does with me as he sees fit. And beloved, it will be the best for you. You will never be dissatisfied with God getting what he wants with you. God getting his way with you is the absolute most glorious existence you could ever possibly have. He said to Paul, Paul, isn't it hard for you to be kicking against the goats? Yeah! <laughs> because we were not created for that. We were created for eternal fellowship with God. And because of Adam's sin and our own sin, that is broken and disfigured. And God is not in the business of leaving us as broken and disfigured beings, but he takes us. 
and he changes us and he shapes us and he forms us into the image he has for us. And beloved, it's absolutely wonderful and glorious. And this is eternal life. That we would be united to our Lord Jesus Christ, saved by faith and confidence and trust in him, no longer condemned like the rest of the world. But it doesn't end there. We take this message out to the world and we tell them, don't be condemned. Turn, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that the Spirit will move and work in people's lives and bring them to that place of new birth as we preach the gospel. God's glorious means to his glorious end. The more I look at the Lord, the more I, 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 the more I walk around the neighborhood of God's kingdom and see new little truths, things that I had missed before, and the more I love Jesus, the more I love the Lord. I read a passage like this that I've read 10,000 times, and, you know, we all know it so well, but yet here you can hear it preached again, and I'm preaching to myself too, beloved. It's like hearing it with fresh virgin ears. Lord, you are so good. God, you are so faithful. You don't deserve any of this, Lord. I mean, I feel sometimes like Nicodemus, just confused and bewildered, but Lord, you are so kind and gentle and patient with me in bringing me to salvation and to all of us here who know you and who love you. Lord. Thank you so much for your radical salvation. In Jesus' name.